0: When I was in South Africa and I just finished my internship, I went to work up in the, what they would call the bushel, these very rural areas in the homelands. And where I worked, there was no electricity. So people actually went to bed when it was dark and they woke up when it was light. They had to live in sync with the rhythms and cycles of nature. You didn't see a lot of the chronic problems that you would see in the city, for instance. Us living out of sync with nature's rhythms is affecting our health. It's like swimming upstream. Your body has to work harder. And I think that's one of the primary causes of sleep problems. One of my favorite tips for people to sleep better is to get outside and get some natural light first thing in the
1: morning. That's Dr. Frank Lipman, and this is episode 161 of The Proof Podcast. Hey beautiful friends, welcome back to another episode. Here we are. An absolute pleasure to be here with you and for those who are tuning in for the first time Thank you so much for finally joining us, gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to TheProof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's TheProof.com forward slash friends Dr. Frank Lipman, pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you so much for doing this. Lovely to be with you. I'm going to start here with a a sort of rather obvious yet, I think, fascinating question and feel free to go into as much detail as you like here. What is sleep from a a physiological point of view and even evolutionary? Why do we spend so much of our time in this state that we call sleep?
0: That's actually a good question. People don't usually start with that, but... um... Uh, it's a great question because most of us don't take sleep seriously. You know, if you sleep a lot or you take sleep too seriously, you look down upon as being lazy and not hardworking enough. And one of the big myths is that sleep is just this downtime where your body rests and, and nothing is really happening except it's sort of recharging you for the next day, which is partly true. It is recharging you. but Uh, Sleep is a very active process. There's uh, many, many biochemical processes happening during sleep and actually only during sleep. So what's happening during sleep very often doesn't happen at other times of the day. And just the way we are built, we need to sort of get rid of the previous day's chemicals and breakdown products to be sharp and ready for the next day. The metaphor I always use is if you have a party, you don't clean up the mess, and then you come downstairs to the living room and you see the mess in the morning, and then you have another party, and the mess just builds up and builds up. You know, if you don't clean up the mess, it's gonna be a real crap show. So this is what happens to your body, in particular your brain, when you don't sleep. Because what's happening in the brain in particular, there's something called the glymphatic system, which actually clears all the debris and all the breakdown products from the day's machinations. And the mess gets cleaned up by this glymphatic system at night. And it only happens when you sleep. It's sort of like a garbage collection and disposal all in one. And the garbage isn't collected and disposed of is if you're not sleeping. So I think when I explain that to my patients, they go, oh, okay, I need to sleep.
1: So sleep is not a, a passive thing. It's very active and restorative. When we hear about sleep and, and people that wear various wearables will definitely be aware of this. We often think of different phases What's important for us to understand about these different stages or, or phases of sleep?
0: Right. So the wearables are interesting because they do measure the different phases. Whether they that accurate or not is another story. I mean, I wear one. I wear an Aura ring and it tells you how much REM sleep you got, how much deep and light sleep. Whether they're that accurate, I'm not convinced, but I think they still are helpful. I'm all for the wearables. But the point is when you're sleeping, your body cycles through different phases. You know there's light sleep, there's what we call REM sleep and then non-REM sleep. The REM sleep is where certain brain waves occur and certain functions are happening, in particularly dreaming and memory storage. I mean, things are changing and there's more and more research coming out but we you know we always used to think that the REM sleep was basically the you know where you dream but it's much more than just dreaming happening in the REM phase memory consolidation is just a, another function but then your body will progress to light and then deep and deep sleep is theoretically when this glymphatic system for instance is really working but sleeping as you said is an active process it's not passive and your body's going through these different phases, fa- cycling through different phases when you're sleeping. Same, you know, it's similar to um, we as humans don't realize that we have body rhythms. and our body rhythms are usually set up according to nature and, and work with nature. But we forget that we have, you know, hundreds of different rhythms in our body. We know we, we have a breathing rhythm. We know we have a heart rhythm. But all your organ systems have, have rhythms and in your brain and with sleep, they're different rhythms as well. So, and that's an important question because when you go to sleep, when you wake up, where you are in, in, the, in those particular cycles is going to affect you. So I think the more we understand sleep and the more we take it seriously and appreciate how sophisticated a system it is and how sophisticated the human body is. And sleep is just a particularly sophisticated process that's happening in our bodies. And, and, and we've never really taken it that serious. It's only probably in the last 10 or 20 years with more and more research coming out that we're realizing you know, what a sophisticated and, and important process it is.
1: And I guess, and, and this is from an evolutionary point of view, if you think about sleep, it opens you up to predators. So the fact that we've evolved to sleep sort of speaks to how vital, how important it actually must be for the human organism.
0: Absolutely. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, you talk about evolution. I think what's happened and why it's become such a big issue. I mean, I think there are many reasons, but one of the primary reasons is since the beginning of electricity and artificial light. Because, you know, here I am in, I'm in New York now. It's after six, so oh, it's actually still light outside. But I'm sitting under artificial light. If I continue sitting under artificial light at eight, nine o'clock at night, my body interprets it as if it's daytime still. So with electricity and all this artificial light, our body Gets confused in terms of when it's nighttime. And before electricity, our body sort of knew that, you know, when the sun started setting, certain metabolic processes started happening in our body and it was more conducive to good sleep. Now, because of artificial light, our body doesn't know if it's day or night. It still thinks it's daytime when it's nighttime. So it's affecting. So many different metabolic processes, and that's it. The other thing about sleep, you know, sleep is going to affect, you know, your whole body, and all metabolic processes are going to be affected by your sleep. You know, some I have had, for instance, so many patients who couldn't lose weight. They were on pristine diets. They were exercising. They were doing all the right things, but they weren't sleeping well.
1: So it affects all aspects of your health. That was my my next question, and I definitely want to explore. Circadian rhythms and light exposure and meal timing, a little bit more as we sort of progress through this conversation. I loved those parts in your book. I'm wondering to sort of paint the picture here, and you just spoke to it a little bit there, but what happens if we don't sleep well from a a human health point of view? If we're sleep deprived, are we more at risk of developing chronic disease? Are we more at risk of living a shorter life?
0: Absolutely. So most of us know when you don't sleep well for a couple of nights, a lot of people anyway, will get a little bit sick or feel run down. You know, for instance, this weekend we had a lot of friends and you know, I, I usually am very, very regular. I mean, as you will talk about sleeping a rhythm, it's really important to go to bed about the same time and wake up at about the same time. And that's really important because it's your primary rhythm Day and night sleep and being awake. So, for instance, this weekend, because we had friends and over and we were social, and just two nights in a row, I went to bed a couple of, you know, two or three hours later than I normally would go to bed. And I always would wake up at the same time and I, I got the sniffles. Um, but, you know, that's a minor thing. But when you start becoming sleep deprived, You're more prone to diabetes, to heart disease, to Alzheimer's, to so many disease processes. You don't just get some sniffles or some brain fog or feel tired. You actually get metabolic diseases that occur over time. You know, I talked about patients who couldn't lose weight until they um, started sleeping. I've had patients who've had heart disease who I wouldn't have thought would have heart disease because, once again, their diets weren't terrible, they were exercising, they were maybe taking the right supplements, they weren't, sometimes there's an emotional aspect, people who get angry, they weren't lonely, They they were relatively happy, but they weren't sleeping. You know, in the last year, I've had two patients who, one had a heart attack and one picked up severe heart disease, and there were two people at a young, a relatively young age who I believe you can never tell for sure that a lack of sleep was a factor.
1: Definitely, if you think about diet, exercise, and sleep, it seems to be the one that we pay the least attention to. And I can only assume that's because, back to what we were talking about earlier, I think there isn't a general assumption that it is a very passive process. And like you said, if you sleep a lot, society tends to see you as lazy. And it's often sort of painted as a bad thing, a non-productive thing. I'm interested here in terms of evaluating your sleep. If someone's listening right now and is trying to gauge, am I ticking the boxes when it comes to my sleep consistently? How do you think about sleep quantity? Say, for example, the hours per night versus quality? Is there a certain number of hours that we know from the research is conducive with better health outcomes? And what kind of things would someone want to be thinking about in terms of evaluating their sleep quality? Great question because it's quantity
0: and quality. The research says you need between seven and nine hours sleep. And I have started believing since I've got more into sleep myself and I'm 66 and I feel, you know, I've always just gone on seven hours sleep, but I'm getting to the place where I think eight hours is probably better for someone like me. I I think there's some people that can do with, you know, even less than, than seven hours sleep. I mean, I see quite a few people who just get six hours of good sleep and they seem to be fine. The research does say between seven and nine hours sleep. I think it is a personal thing, but I do think, As we get older, we probably need more sleep than less sleep. You know, most people, as they get older, sleep less, and they think they don't need as much sleep as they get older. I actually think it's the opposite. I think as we get older, we probably need closer to eight hours sleep than seven hours. I'm seeing it with myself, and the more I start questioning my patients, you know, because You know, I've been a holistic physician for a long, long time. I've been a physician for 40 years, doing functional medicine for 30 odd years. And it's only in the last five years or so that sleep is something that has become more important in my questioning. And as you pointed out, you know, I've been obsessed with diet and exercise and, you know, I recommend supplements and with being in nature and circadian rhythms, which we should talk about. But delving deeper into sleep is sort of relatively new for me. And I I think I'm sort of open and one of the people who at least get into it. I think even in holistic medicine, sleep, everyone knows we need to sleep, but people don't delve deep enough into it. And that's because it's, it's this vague thing It's hard to measure. We didn't really know exactly what was happening. But I do think it's changing now. I think there's more and more research. There's more and more information out there. There are more and more people talking about it. With your generation and people who biohacking and want to really optimize their health and want to be one up, you know, they go for their diet and they go for exercise. And, you know, I I see this in New York, especially with the Wall Street types. They're sort of realizing that they can perform better if they sleep better. So the athletes now Are taking sleep seriously. Sleep and performance are now being connected. So it's all good, but it is relatively new.
1: It's nice to see that narrative flip because it wasn't long ago that you would hear, I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, and it was all about just work, work, work. So it's nice to see now people, you know, realizing the value of sleep in terms of their productivity, be it performance in sport or in business. So that sort of quantity, eight hours, in terms of quality how do you gauge that personally as to whether your body is falling into these various phases and is doing it well well that's an excellent
0: question and i'm not sure what the answer is because i do have a sleep tracker and in all fairness it's the aura ring and i actually really like it but but a big but i know because i've been messing around with this for a while I've sort of dozed off in front of the TV at night and it it will read as deep sleep. If I meditate in bed in the morning, if if I don't get out of bed and and move around and I sort of wake up and say, okay, I'm going to meditate in bed, it sometimes reads it as deep sleep. What it reads as deep sleep may or may not be deep sleep. REM sleep, I'm not sure because you know it's hard to say. I, I at first I, I used to associate when I remembered dreams and when I was dreaming with REM sleep, but I think it's more sophisticated than that. So you do want to to cycle through your light sleep and your REM sleep and your light and deep and REM sleep. How much you need is another story. I mean, I, I, no one really knows. You know, people talk about at least 20, 25% for deep sleep, 20, 25% for REM sleep. No one really knows. But once you have a sleep tracker and you're very aware and you sort of pay attention to what's going on, you sort of pick up patterns of what helps you sleep if you go into a deeper sleep. You know, I know there's a connection um, with a sauna, for instance. When I sauna, I tend to sleep better. When I eat earlier, I tend to sleep better So, and get more deep sleep. But these are just assessments I'm making from monitoring my own sleep. There isn't great research on all of this, except to say that all these things obviously do affect your sleep.
1: I'm with you there. I wear a whoop. I realize that the data may not be... accurate, but I kind of navigate quality in a similar way to you. I too have noticed I have a sauna. I've noticed my sleep is much better if I have a sauna in the evening. I try and also eat earlier than I used to, not right before I go to bed, and keeping the room cool. Those are three things for me that personally, you know, I've been trying to work out, you know, what's my sleep quality like and really. The objective measure I've been using, and I'm not sure if it's perfect, is how am I feeling in terms of my thought processes and my clarity in the morning after and tweaking some of those things that we just spoke about then. And it seems to be resulting in a more restored state when I am doing those things right and sort of stacking them on top of each other.
0: Yeah, I think that's The key, I think there are many factors that affect our sleep. It's, you know, anxiety is a big one. But the other thing that really affects sleep, and this is not really from me, but from my patients, is the microbiome and the state of your microbiome. And that I just noticed over the years when I used to give, you know, when people used to come in with IBS or SIBO or some gut problems, and I used to give them herbs or to clean out the gut, they would come back and say, oh, I've got less bloating and less gas and my gut feels better. But you know what's interesting? I'm sleeping better. So I sort of picked that up for years that when you help someone's microbiome, they actually sleep better. And what was interesting is when I was researching the book, you know, there's a little bit of research and more and more of it coming out, the effect of the microbiome and sleep. And and it's just perfectly logical that it would affect it because you have this direct highway the vagus nerve between the gut and the brain and the bugs in your gut are making all these neurochemicals that are also made in you know all the the gut's called the second brain and all the neurochemicals made in the brain are made in the gut so when you're producing certain neurochemicals it can help you sleep or hinder your sleep so uh, there's definitely a connection with the gut and the brain and uh, of that i have no doubt
1: if you've tuned in to the many episodes i've done focusing on cardiovascular disease the leading cause of death globally you'll be well aware that apob is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than ldl cholesterol The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test apob levels fortunately this has now been made easier by inside tracker a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging genetics and biometric data from harvard mit and tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results with the new edition of apob Get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. That's InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. So, what? Hey, friends. I guess kind of high level principles when it comes to lifestyle and promoting a healthy microbiome.
0: Well, the first thing is uh, it may be different in Australia, but as uh, physicians seeing a lot of a lot of young women in particular, but men too in their twenties and thirties who come in with an altered microbiome, the most common culprit is. They took a lot of antibiotics as kids, whether it was for recurrent sore throats or sinus infections or urinary tract infections probably unnecessarily. I mean, I can't tell for sure, but we do hand out uh, antibiotics like candy. So these people are coming in, and, and that's the one group. The second group are older people usually who've been on proton pump inhibitors, drugs, Like the acid blockers, and not only uh, do they block the acid, but because of that, they cause an imbalance in the microbiome. So, a lot of times, people are coming in with altered microbiomes, even with a good diet. So, the diet is one aspect, but if their microbiome is altered, usually caused by medically induced by the drugs that we give them, they can have the perfect diet. They can, I mean. Typically, someone will come in with what we would call small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or a lot of bloating and gas, and they come in on this plant-based diet, and they think they're eating this really healthy diet. But because of this alteration in the flora, they're having problems breaking down a lot of the vegetables. So it's very frustrating for these people because they think they're eating a good diet, and it may be a good diet, but for them, until they got a microbiome that's a little bit more corrected or imbalanced, they struggle with generically healthy foods. So um, the the big things would be uh, stopping sugar and starches as much as possible. In America, and this is different to Canada, we have a major problem with glyphosate. I don't know if you know what glyphosate is, but glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup which is used on genetically modified organisms. The problem in America is glyphosate is sprayed on many crops, in particular grains and legumes, but grains in particular, to help with the drying process. So farmers will spray their crops with glyphosate to get them to harvest quicker. And glyphosate is actually not only a pesticide, but it's a registered antibiotic. So as many others in in my world are of the belief that a lot of the damage people have to their microbiomes in America is not only all the drugs that they've taken, but the continual, you know, because glyphosate has permeated the food system here. The continual intake of foods with glyphosate on them and probably other pesticides has also caused an alteration in the microbiome. So you know, over here in America, you know, I try to get everyone off sugars and as many starches as possible. I try and get them to eat organic produce if possible. You know, organic is an issue here. It's crazy that, you know, I, I don't know what the story is in Australia. I would imagine it's less of a problem. I tell people if they are going to eat animal products, they, they shouldn't eat any factory farm animal products you know, I'm not attached to any particular diet. I think different people do better on, you know, some people do well on a vegan diet, some people do well on a paleo diet. I am, you know, agnostic in terms of what the the one right diet is for everyone, because I think everyone's different, but getting off sugar, getting off starches, trying to eat organic would be the big things. You know, as you get older, Eating less animal protein, if you do eat animal protein, is a good idea, but that's a whole other story for longevity and how it affects the longevity genes. But those would be the big things. The sugar, processed foods, starches, and, and all the chemicals that we put on the foods are the big things here.
1: Can I just clarify the starches because that's kind of a, a little bit of a different, I guess, terminology to sometimes what's used in Australia. What, uh, what types of foods are you talking about there?
0: Like potatoes, too much white rice in particular, too many root vegetables can, but, but potatoes in particular, processed foods. I mean, if someone stops sugar processed foods and probably gluten here, because gluten's also been altered, you know, people go to Europe and they eat gluten and they have bread and pasta and it's not a problem. But here, if you get rid of sugar, processed foods, breads and pasta, that's
1: probably would be the big ones to, to take out of your, your diet. And that's, that's making up almost 60% of the average person's calories in America today. So it's a, it's a big chunk. It's obvious where the sort of low hanging fruit is, right? And where in terms of helping people become healthier, that seems like the most obvious thing for everyone to kind of all agree on. Let's just dig a little bit deeper into sort of what can derail our sleep. You speak a lot in your book about meal timing and light exposure. You've spoken a little bit about that here. What's the relationship between these things, these sort of exposures, our circadian rhythms, and, and ultimately, how does this affect the sleep that we do or do not get?
0: Right. So I think rhythms and understanding that you know we as human beings are microcosms of the macrocosm, which is nature, is important. And you know, theoretically should be in sync with nature's cycles. We theoretically should go to sleep when it's dark and wake when it's light. And what's interesting, when I was in South Africa and I just finished my internship, I went to work up in the what they would call the bush, these very rural areas in the homelands in, in those days there was apartheid. And where I worked, there was no electricity. So people actually went to bed when it was dark and they woke up when it was light. They had to live in sync with the rhythms and cycles of nature. And yes, there were different times, but you you didn't see a lot of the chronic problems that um, you would see in the city, for instance. Now, there probably were other factors as well, but I do think us living out of sync with nature's rhythms is affecting our health. It's like swimming upstream. You know, it's much, much harder. So your body has to work harder. And the primary rhythms are sleep and being awake. And the primary rhythm of nature is light and dark. So if you affect the light and dark and have too much light you know, what basically happens to our bodies, we don't get enough natural light during the day. we either sitting under artificial lights or indoors in our offices. We're not getting enough natural light during the day. And at, at night, when we should be getting darkness, we're getting too much artificial light. So it confuses the body. The body has a harder time to get into rhythm. And I think that's one of the primary causes of sleep problems, you know. One of my favorite tips for people to sleep better is to get outside and get some natural light first thing in the morning, because that helps your body sync up. You know, same as I, when someone, you know, when I've been to Australia or when I travel to Europe, when you go into different time zones, I recommend people take melatonin when it's nighttime or just before nighttime at the place they going to, because the melatonin is your sleep hormone and it helps you get you know so take melatonin at night or at nighttime wherever you're going and you wake up first thing you know when it's light then you go for a walk and have a cup of coffee so you're trying to push your body into that particular rhythm of wherever you are and i think trying to live in sync as much as you can i mean it's you know i've got to be realistic but as much as you can being in sync with with nature and the cycles of day and night is really important and not too much artificial light at night and more natural light during the day.
1: You mentioned melatonin there perhaps you could talk just briefly What's happening with our body's natural production of melatonin and cortisol hormones throughout the day, and how is that related to feeling alert or in the evening, you know, winding down? What happens
0: now? Let's say I'm in New York; it's six, almost seven o'clock. It's starting to become a little bit dark and. Your body starts shifting and settling down, and your body starts secreting melatonin, which is your sleep hormone, and that increases until certain hours of the night. And then when you wake up in your in the morning, your melatonin level starts coming down, and your body starts producing cortisol, which has a bad rap. You know, cortisol is like the stress hormone, but you need cortisol to start getting you going during the day. So there's this. Rhythmic secretion of melatonin at night and cortisol during the day, which is really important to help you with sleep and day, you know, daytime alertness. And a common cause of sleep problems is when your body is secreting cortisol at night. The commonest cause is actually anxiety and stress, which is very common here. So. I see cortisol and melatonin as sort of the daytime hormone and the nighttime hormone. It's Obviously more complicated than that, but when you explain that to people that you should be having more cortisol during the day, starting in the morning, and it tapers off at night and the melatonin starts being secreted. This rhythmic secretion of these hormones, just another rhythm in the body. You know, As I said, the body has so many different rhythms. Your digestion has a rhythm, it peaks for instance during at midday. So you asked about food and rhythm, you know, ideally, we should be eating most of our food by lunchtime and having a smaller dinner, which is not what most of us do. And the reason being because your body's rhythm, your digestive rhythm sort of it's peaking at around
1: midday. So that's when you want to put most of the food into your body. The the part there about meal timing is really interesting because, of course, fasting has become quite popular and time-restricted eating. But I think a lot of people actually do that more in reverse in terms of they don't eat in the first half of the day and then start eating uh, and eat later into the evening. But what you just spoke to then would suggest that if someone was shortening their eating window, would you agree that that's better shifted more towards the first half of the day?
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, I usually eat within an eight-hour period, but my eight hours of eating is usually between sort of 11 and 7 or 10 and 6, 100% correct in terms of body rhythms, which I think are important.
1: Cool. So in terms of sort of nurturing these natural rhythms in a, a simplified way, what we're talking about here is the importance of Not exposing yourself late in the day, in the evening to lots of artificial light, trying to eat a little earlier in the day, again in the evening, if you are stressed, uh, it sounds like trying to find ways to alleviate that stress could be another good tool to help melatonin and cortisol fluctuate how they should. What other things do you like people to think about with regards to their routine or their set up or the temperature or using alarms, all that stuff.
0: So temperature is important. As you mentioned, you like a, uh, a room that's around 66. Yeah, I think a cold room is important. Once again, a warmer room will inhibit the production of melatonin. So that is important, a cold room. A dark room is crucial. And if you can't use these blocking blinds, Just get an eye mask because any little bit of light is going to affect the secretion of your body's melatonin. So being in a cold, dark room like a cave is really, really important. It's interesting. I see um, my daughter is 33, 34. She's got a 17-month-old kid, and it's like a cave. It's like freezing (laughs) It's cold and it's like so dark, but it's good. I think I think this her and her friends, that generation have got it. They, she's trying to, you know she's teaching my grandson to get into this sleep rhythm, and it's been unbelievable. I mean, it's really worked incredibly well, how it's interesting how he sleeps. So so dark, cold room is important. It's important to think about not expecting to go at one hundred miles an hour and then stop dead and go to sleep. A transition period between wake time and sleep is really important. You know, some people have a hot bath, I think dimming the lights, listening to some relaxing music. I'm a big fan, for instance, of Bob Marley or reggae. Reggae beats at about 60 beats per minute, which is the beat of a slow heartbeat. So your body talk about rhythms, your body entrains to that beat. So putting on relaxing music can be helpful, doing some restorative yoga, but using an hour or two of, of transitioning, I think is really important. And I don't think CBD is a big thing in Australia, but you know I've been using CBD a lot to help people sleep and it's been actually incredibly helpful for a lot of people. And now it's getting so sophisticated, you get CBN, you get different strains of CBD, which not only helps people calm down their nervous system, but it can help them sleep. It's one of the supplements that I've seen
1: help quite a bit has been CBD for sleep. Yeah, it's becoming, I mean, anecdotally, it's becoming quite mainstream and popular in australia people are getting their hands on it is there any good sort of evidence or clinical data yet on cbd or would you say it's early days
0: yeah it's early days i don't think you know they, they'll make lots of claims it's early days but i would say clinically you know and this has been my experience for the last 30 odd years you notice things clinically before the the research comes out you know whether it was from gluten, people reacting to gluten their microbiome I mean, i've used to, because I just see so many patients, you can sort of see things often before the research. And CBD is definitely one of those things. I mean, magnesium can be helpful, there's no question. But of all the supplements that I've seen helping sleep, CBD would be right up there. And, and the problem is it's different people react to different strains at different doses. It's not an easy fix. It's
1: not one size fits all. But it but can absolutely be helpful. I get that. And absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So it's likely that trials will come out in the future. I guess for now, it's around people finding someone, an expert that they can work with to make sure they're choosing the right type and it's a reliable source and the dosage and everything is is right and weighing up any risks that there may be based on who they are. Just before we kind of dive a little bit more into supplements, I wondered on the light exposure side of things, what do you think about blue blockers? It's not something I've looked into in great deal.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think they're interesting. I mean, theoretically, I know people who use them, who swear by them. I, in the early days, bought a pair, but they're such a damn nuisance to wear that I just stopped wearing them. But philosophically, the concept makes sense because you're blocking that blue light, which is affecting your your body rhythms and your sleep. So, yes, theoretically, they work. I, I just think they're in uses People do use them and, and love them. So I'm definitely not against them. I just think it's, it's sort of a harder sell for people. I mean, if you don't mind walking around with these orange glasses or whatever. But, you know, I think theoretically,
1: yes, it makes sense. Cool. Let's dive into supplements a little bit more here. You mentioned CBD. Before you spoke about the utility of melatonin, particularly with jet lag, I think this probably comes to mind when people think about sleep. And we've spoken about the natural production of melatonin. Is melatonin supplementation something that people should consider in their everyday life when they're not jet lagged and they're looking for, for better sleep? Are there any downsides to be aware of when it comes to melatonin supplementation? I think sleep
0: to me is a symptom of some other underlying imbalance in the body. So I'm looking to see why sleep is a problem. Is it a rhythm problem? Is it because of anxiety? Is it because of the environment the person is? Is it hormones? So, if it's a rhythm problem, then melatonin is a no brainer. The one caveat about melatonin is you actually don't need that much. You know, a lot of supplements are one, two, three milligrams. You need half a milligram at night is, is usually more than enough. I try not to give uh, higher doses of melatonin or recommend high doses because theoretically it can suppress your body's own production. So I, for the most part, use melatonin to help people get back into rhythm rather than as a standard sleep supplement. So that's number one. Some people use high-dose melatonin for immune boosting. So that's a whole other story. But in terms of getting back into a sleep rhythm and to... To help someone sleep problems, I think 0.5 milligrams is probably more than enough. But, you know, melatonin theoretically will work for a rhythm problem. If someone's got anxiety, melatonin usually doesn't help as much. You, what is more important is teaching people to just calm down their nervous systems. And if they can't do it with yoga or meditation or breathing, listening to calming music, magnesium is one of the supplements I use. The other one is L theanine. L theanine is an amino acid actually found in green tea, believe it or not. But L theanine is like nature's Valium. It's very calming. I use it
1: a lot to help people, you know, just settle down. Um, is there a uh, particular form of magnesium that you recommend? There seems to be quite a few different types.
0: Yeah. Good question. So the magnesium, how I determine what magnesium to use is if you tend to be more constipated and you're not pooping well, I tend to use magnesium citrate or oxide. If you're not constipated and you're pooping all right, then I tend to use magnesium glycinate because glycine can actually also help with sleep. So I I use magnesium glycinate. But there's another form of magnesium that some people talk about, whether it's real or not. And actually, I take it often. I take magnesium at night, either magnesium glycinate or magnesium threonate. The belief from the magnesium threonate people is, I'm not sure, is that the magnesium threonate helps the magnesium cross the blood-brain barrier. I, I don't know if that's really real, but I take either magnesium glycinate or threonate. So I, I tend to use The type of magnesium, depending on your poop, if you're constipated, you want something to irritate the bowel a bit and you use citrate or oxide. If you're not, I use
1: glycinate or threonate. Threonate may be harder to find. And in terms of dosages, is it just to follow the label or is the dosage pretty similar across those different types of magnesium?
0: Yeah, well, the dosage on labels is usually under, I mean, is is what I sometimes call homeopathic. It's so low. Magnesium is one of those minerals that most people are actually deficient in. So I'm actually quite liberal with magnesium. At least you know, I usually recommend it three hundred to five hundred at night. Sometimes I u- even use more, but usually about three hundred milligrams to five hundred milligrams. And I usually recommend magnesium at night because it is calming. Uh, people love magnesium. And, and another tip is having a hot bath with Epsom salts in. Epsom salts is full of magnesium, so it tends to relax the muscles, and the magnesium also gets absorbed you know, through the skin. So it's a nice way to get magnesium as well in an Epsom
1: salts bath. With magnesium, I'm just thinking here, there's probably two different types of people listening, someone that maybe has some sleep issues and is thinking, wow, that's something I would like to explore or consider further. And then someone else who is interested in sleep, but doesn't feel like they're actually having sleep problems. In that instance, if someone's sleep is good, do you still feel like the supplementation of magnesium is worth exploring? Or are we talking more about someone that has difficulty with sleeping?
0: Well, definitely someone who has difficulty. But my experience with you know thousands and thousands of patients is most people. This is New York. You know Australia. I just remember going to Australia. Everyone seems so mellow. Uh, even though there's a lot of Australians here in New York, even the Australians I see here, so it seems to be a different attitude. But because so many people are stressed out in New York, and because stress often depletes someone's Magnesium levels, so many people are deficient in magnesium and is one of those supplements that I recommend to most people, so you know if you're sleeping well it may not be essential, you can get your red blood cell magnesium levels checked, although most doctors just do traditional magnesium serum levels which are not as accurate as red blood cell magnesium. but I'd say i I recommend magnesium to most of my patients. I just think it's one of those wonderful minerals that so many people are deficient
1: in and you can't really go wrong with it. What about some of the more, I guess, traditional kind of sleep remedies we hear about chamomile tea, valerian root, tart cherry, these sort of ingredients, are they worthy of experimenting with?
0: Definitely. I think anything is, you know, I'm a big experimenter. I think you always need to try experiment and see what works for you. I mean, chamomile tea, you, you need a lot of tea to to really calm you down. Valerian roots got such a terrible smell, but I, I can definitely be helpful. Tart cherry, some people swear by. So yeah, I think it's worth trying all these things. Um, ultimately, to me, it's trying to ascertain why you're not sleeping properly and, and sort of work with what the cause is. So if it's anxiety, you treat the anxiety. If it's a rhythm problem, you treat the rhythm problem. If it's a hormone problem, you may need to. Could be hormonal balance. Um, Ultimately, it's looking for the cause, but yes, I'm all for experimenting with all these things. But I'm against using supplements like healthier version of drugs. You know, don't, don't just pop a supplement. Try and work out why you're not sleeping and then
1: take something accordingly. I think that's really good really good advice. If you're struggling to fall asleep or you're waking up really tired, don't just look to the supplement as something that's going to solve everything. Perhaps the first step is working with someone, taking inventory and trying to get down to those root causes first and then making a plan from there. I'm interested, what's your personal supplement regime look like when it comes to sleep?
0: I just take some magnesium I take magnesium every night just as a habit. And when I feel like I'm stressed or I've got a lot of stuff going on, I have my CBD next to my bed and I'll pop the CBD, you know, I have a tincture. So that's basically what I do, you know. But in my practice, I use L-theanine a lot and I use L-theanine often mixed with GABA, GABA amino butyric acid, which is also calming nutrient amino acids. So I use L-theanine and GABA a lot. Depends on what formulas I have in the office and how much people need to chill out. But I'm always encouraging people to meditate. To you know, med- meditating in the morning can help sleep at night. You know, it's important. So many people have an agitated nervous system, and if that's the case, you've got to work on how do you calm down that nervous system.
1: What do you? think about caffeine then because that's almost the opposite and, and is a stimulant. You know, My research into coffee at a high level suggests, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, if you're not sensitive, it seems to be associated with good health outcomes. But given it is a stimulant, what's your position on it? Is it something for people with sleep problems to consider giving up? Is it something that can negatively impact sleep? I'm interested where you've landed here.
0: I land in sort of your camp. It's a genetic, you know, it's a genetic thing how you metabolize caffeine. There's actually a gene, specific gene that can tell you how well you metabolize caffeine. Most people know they don't need the genetic testing to tell them. I have coffee, I have my black coffee with my fasting every morning. I'm a you know, I love coffee, I don't think it's a problem. Having said that, if you are sensitive to caffeine and you have caffeine too late, Absolutely, it can affect your sleep, no question. So, but most people know how quickly they metabolize caffeine and if they can have coffee after one or two o'clock. In other words, caffeine is sort of known to be a stimulant and people will, well, most people anyway, will know that if they're having caffeine too late, it can be a problem, including dark chocolate, which could be full of caffeine. A bigger issue is alcohol. And for you Aussies, I think we should talk about alcohol and sleep because that's a bigger issue I find than caffeine because most people won't have a cup of coffee to go to sleep, but a lot of people will have a drink or two because they think it relaxes them, which it does, and it helps them sleep. The problem is it does relax them and it help them sleep, but then... They wake up, you know, four, five, six hours later as alcohol is being metabolized. So it's actually one of the worst things you can do for sleep is drink at night. And it takes people a while to sort of get that. But when you get them off alcohol and they realize it, it's like, it's very interesting. So alcohol is usually more of a problem than caffeine because people know, you know, drinking caffeine at
1: night or even in the afternoon may be a problem. That's super common. I hear it all the time, people talking about having that glass of red wine or nightcap. It's what helps them drift off. Would I be right in assuming that such people, if they're having difficulty falling asleep without the alcohol, that sounds like a rhythm issue and they would want to look at many of the things we've discussed already in terms of how can they nurture those circadian rhythms perhaps a little better?
0: Yeah, it could be a rhythm issue, but it's often actually an anxiety or stress issue because alcohol tends to just chill them out a bit. So they need to somehow deal with the stress in in a, in a way that's not going to affect their sleep as much. I tell people to smoke a joint, you know, if you don't want to. Some people, obviously, I'll recommend CBD before alcohol. But, you know, if people want to get into an altered state from whatever they're doing, rather smoke some marijuana than have alcohol, because that's probably going to help you sleep more than hinder your sleep. So it all depends. But I, I, I think alcohol is a problem, especially, you know, too much alcohol at night for a lot of people. And it's very hard for them to accept. Now, some people, you know, if you have a drink, it may be fine. But once you start getting over
1: what your body metabolizes well, then it becomes a problem. And what about this kind of vicious cycle where, let's say, someone is having a glass of alcohol, of red wine, it's helping them fall asleep. They hear this and and they try and stop that. And they find that they're having difficulty falling asleep and then that leads to frustration of not falling asleep. How does someone sort of navigate that?
0: Well, that's a great, great question because that is often what happens. You have to teach someone how to, you know, manage the stress in a healthier way. And if there's a choice between having a drink and at least getting sleep and not having a drink and not sleeping, you know, obviously to me the better poison is having a drink. You know, it's not a it's not even a question. But over time I would encourage them to learn some, you know, relaxation techniques, try switch. The alcohol to L theanine or CBD or something else, uh, do some restore, you know, find
1: some other way to calm your body down instead of having a drink. Sure. And I have to ask here about prescription sleeping drugs uh, like benzodiazepines or temazepam, for example. What are your thoughts? Can you kind of speak to why those drugs are prescribed for what type of person and if someone is taking them, is there any utility or what are some of the things that you would want them to consider thinking about?
0: Unfortunately they are overprescribed because you know in Western medicine our tools or drugs or surgeries so if you've got a sleep problem and he has a sleeping pill, we're not really looking for why it's happening and we're not really looking at supplements or, or relaxation techniques or you know, what are the lifestyle changes someone can make? So unfortunately, they over-prescribe. The research shows that even when you take a sleeping pill, you don't actually get that much more sleep. And even the type of sleep you get is can be questionable. So sleeping pills are not really that helpful. I mean, there is a very, very, you know, there's a very limited indication for sleeping pills. And then there are the side effects of sleeping. Addiction is is one of the big ones. You feel groggy the next day. I mean, you get these people have walk in their sleep and do all these crazy things with sleeping pills. So sleeping pills are not benign. And and over time, they've been correlated with Alzheimer's as well, long-term use of these sleeping pills. So sleeping pills are absolutely not benign medications. And I would encourage anyone who's on sleeping pills to slowly try and wean themselves off with someone who knows how to help them do that because that do cause problems over time and they're actually not that helpful
1: either. So would I be right in, in saying that although they are helping you fall asleep, back to that very start of our conversation, you spoke about sleep being a very active process. There are lots of different things occurring. Would these drugs be potentially affecting the different phases and the different processes that are actively happening during sleep?
0: Well, we don't know for sure. So I can't say, but the way I understand drugs in general is, you know, drugs have effects. The ones we don't like, we call side effects. The drugs don't usually only affect one limited aspect of your being. So I always question Using a drug, I mean, I'm not against medications. And if someone really needs a medication, there's definitely a place for medication. I'm, you know, I'm, a, uh, I'm not against them. I just think they're overused. And um, we, we don't acknowledge the side effects or all the, the many different effects of any particular medication. And we know sleeping pills have all these side effects. So why, when you can help sleep in so many other ways, would you want to go down that path? Now, for short term, you know, someone's having a really hard time sleeping and there's a major issue. I don't have a problem with short term sleeping pills. But, you know, once you start getting over two, three
1: weeks, I think you need to question why you're taking it and look at other ways to help you sleep. Speaking of broken sleep, I have a, a quick question here as we come to the end. Is it an issue if you're finding yourself waking up a couple of times throughout the evening to, throughout the night, I should say, to go to the bathroom?
0: Great question. I don't think it's an uh, an issue if you're getting back to sleep. If you're waking up and you don't have a problem falling back to sleep, then it's more than likely not a major issue because you know that's the human condition. You know, as we get older, you know, men in particular, the prostates get bigger; they got to pee more often. You know, once, twice, sometimes even more. But I don't think it's an issue if you're waking up, peeing, and then going back to sleep. But I think if you're waking up and then you're struggling to get back to sleep, that's that's more of the issue.
1: Yeah. I know for me personally, you know, I don't definitely don't wake up every single night to go to the bathroom. If I wake up more towards the the earlier part of the night, I fall to sleep straight away. But if it's getting closer to the time that I would wake up, the thoughts start running in my head and I start thinking about the day. And then it is quite difficult to to get back to sleep. Let's finish here on exercise. We haven't spoken about exercise. Is there any particular rule of thumb when it comes to exercise and sleep? Is the amount, the type or the time of the day important?
0: Well, I think first of all, exercise does help one sleep. There's no question about that. For myself, I've noticed for many of my patients, when they're exercising, they sleep better. For some people, when they exercise too late in the afternoon or at night, it absolutely affects their sleep. And interesting enough, I would have said that for most people they should exercise in the morning or earlier on in the day. But I know tons of patients of mine who exercise at night and don't have a problem. And I think some of the studies done on some Olympic athletes, you know, when it comes to body rhythms, their peak is actually, I think, sometimes in, in the afternoon. So I think exercising is crucial for your health. So whenever you can exercise, it's important. I do believe exercising earlier on is better. And exercising after dinner or closer to bedtime can absolutely be a problem. It's gonna affect your rhythm. So I would recommend not exercising in the evening, but I know tons of people who that's when they can exercise and it doesn't affect their sleep. So what can I say,
1: Simon? Well, Dr. Lipman, it's been a pleasure having you on the show.
0: Thank you for having me and thanks for a great interview.
1: Hopefully you can come back and uh, join me again sometime in the future. I'm sure people would love to hear from you again.
0: Yeah. When you get older, we'll talk about aging. How's that?
1: <laughs> we can do that. We can pencil that in. All right. So better sleep, better you. If folks want to grab a copy, what's the, what's the best way of doing that?
0: I know in, in America it's at Amazon all bookstores. I don't know what the story is in Australia,
1: but you know, Amazon has it. Cool. Well I'll I'll do some digging and if there's a different link for the Aussies, I'll put that into the uh, show notes. And if if people would like to connect with you online, what's the best place? My
0: website, Dr Frank Lipman, DR dot com. I have a free newsletter, have a lot of great information. Uh, I do tweet, Facebook. I hate Facebook, but uh, yeah. I'm fine. And then actually, I do have an Instagram. My health coach does it. Too. <laughs> I don't do it, but um, I tweet and I, I write a lot. I, we have blogs. You know, we put out a newsletter every Sunday. So sign up for the newsletter.
1: Incredible! Thank you so much. I'm sure the uh, the average sleep quantity and quality in this community is going to go up thanks to you.
0: Thanks, Simon.
1: There we go. How did that one land for you? I hope that you found it interesting, instructive, illuminating, all the things. Of course, if you did, please do share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected too. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. That's at plant underscore proof. And on that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.